Good morning, everybody, and thank you for joining me on this um, edition of uh, the Localization Fireside Chat. Today is Friday, uh, April 21st, and uh, happy to be joined by my friend and colleague in the industry and uh, respected authority on the conversation when it comes to mergers and acquisition, uh, Michael Klinger. And uh, Michael doesn't need a lot of introduction. Every one of my audience probably know who Michael is, but uh, let's give him the mic a little bit and let Mike introduce himself. Thanks, Robin. It's always fun to connect. Um, yeah, I was just thinking, I was, I was telling my, uh, my partner, I have a funny life. I, I, I was trained as a movement therapist back 30 years ago. So <laughs> that was the world I was in. And then I got married with kids. I thought, Jesus, I went back and got an MBA because I thought, I can't, uh, I'm not going to make a living, you know, working as a, working with autistic children, uh, helping them move to music. So I, um, yeah, so I got an MBA and I worked in the, I spoke a lot of languages. I, I, I'm conversant in six languages. So I worked in the international field. Mm -hmm. Started off uh, in a small company doing translation and started doing localization. And then I then ended up um, also doing staffing the localization field. And fast forward, I, I worked for a company called uh, Winter Wyman and it was bought by Compsys and they they wanted to grow our business by buying companies. And that's um, how the M&A part started. Um, and then I went out on my own about 2006 and did staffing. And I started getting requests for people to say, Mike, can you find a, a business for me? Uh, I don't want. I don't want to. I want to grow in in Asia, or I want to grow in Europe. So I didn't even know. You know, what is it? What do you charge? I had no idea. That's how it started. I wasn't really looking to do it. Mm -hmm. At this point, um, I work with probably over a hundred buyers and maybe fifteen to twenty sellers, and I've been doing this for six, seven, eight years. So it's it's. I like it. I like helping people. It's it's funny you you. Um... You know, you, you hit a, a very interesting point uh, when you are a, uh, small to midsize or midsize companies in general, uh, larger companies probably have lesser problem in it. Um, when you try to, when you have like a customer, generally it's driven, our services are in, in our industry is driven by customer demand or market demand. Right. If you have a market demand, let's say in Asia and you don't have an operation in Asia, in your world, probably somebody would probably think, oh, let me buy something in Asia. And that helps me address the need for my market in that in that area. Is that, yeah. is that really what happens? Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, because there's all these legal components, you know, to starting a business. Suppose you're in Canada and you want to start a business in, in France. Uh, it, it's much more complicated. But if you mm -hmm. buy a company that's already there legally, mm -hmm. figure out that you work with the international lawyers to go, okay, this, it makes it, it speeds the process up. Absolutely, it does. Now, tell me a little bit about uh, the Anzo, Anzo Global, right? That's, that's the name of the company that you guys are operating under right now, right? Anzo Global? Well, there's two. Anzo Global does the staffing. Language Transaction does the M&A work. They're two okay. separate businesses, kind of sister companies. Yeah. And they're, they're, they're both owned by you, uh, Michael? Yeah. Or do you have partners? or? <laughs> no, they're both owned by me. I'm, I'm, I'm now a big shot. I should... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Michael, you're you're always you're always great, man. I love I love talking to you. It's just it adds that little uh, smile to the conversation. Always always great. Um, so um, the M and A part, uh, the language transaction, I guess you called it, right? So, um, in in your view, I mean, you've been at it for for a while. I've known you for many years, and you've been doing this on both sides, the staffing and the language transaction. So, yeah. 
that have changed um, since you've started working in it? Like, and, and I'm talking about the, there's multiple facets to change. There's multiple aspects to change in, the, in our industry. But, mm. you know, what are the major drivers for, uh, for, for, the, uh, for the transaction to take place if we're talking okay. about somebody selling or somebody buying? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question, Robert. I, I, I think, you know, step back and think of the real estate market, you know, and you go, uh, boy, it's a hot market. Well, why? Maybe there's not a lot of houses out there. And, and, and people have money, you know, or the interest rates are low. It's kind of a little bit like that here. You know, it's funny now the banks with the, with the, with the issues with the banks, and now the banks are more careful lending money and the interest rates are higher. So now it becomes more of a, a buyer's market because the buyers who have money mm-hmm. can, you know, but say four or five years ago, it was, it was crazy. I mean, I, I'd have a seller on the market, you know, um, March 1st and March 15th, they'd have four or five offers, you know, so it was, uh, you know, it was a different, it was a different animal. I think it's, it's moved out of the seller's market, I'd say, mm-hmm. think, to, to because of uh, more of a buyer's market. So in your opinion, then based on what you just told me, I think, uh, for what I understand is the uh, financial health of the economy, I guess, interest rate, inflation, et cetera, are something to watch for in terms of, you know, if you're a buyer or a seller and how does that impact you? If it's if you're in the buyer mode, you know, you got to take consideration of what's going on around you from an economic perspective, access to finance, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, it, that's true. It, what I said is true. And it's also, it's also not true. In other words, uh, you know, um, yeah, the terms of the banking terms are true. But look, when COVID hit, everyone said, oh, boy, yeah. we're going to be hammered. And a lot of companies grew. Of course. Because, because we're an international market. So, you mm-hmm. know, RWS or uh, we localized, they're not going to stop buying because the terms of the bank, you know. So a lot of the, it's it's really going to depend on maybe the midsize, you know, the yep. $10 million company says, boy, I can't, I can't, uh, I can't swing the deal this way. You know, the seller's going to take out a seller's note and, and I'm going to pay out over five years instead of two. So in your, in your mind, uh, like based on what you've seen, um, where does the split between uh, private equity firms and individual buyers in your world happen? So like, is there, what, you know, is, are most of the transactions are happening because individual buyers or somebody who owns a company wants to, wants to grow by buying another company or more on a piece? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Robin, the, the industry is funny. Up top, there's the, you know, the half a billion. You see, I don't say you see multilingual computing, the picture of Phil Shaw, billion dollar man. I mean, so there's a, there's a handful of those big guys. Then there's, you know, the top 100, they go down to 50, 50 million, 30, 40. And then you get all these companies, as we, you know, 15,000 companies that are 2 million, 1 million. PE is not going to touch it. VC is not going to touch it. So, those guys are playing in the higher, you know, um, mm-hmm. in the higher echelons, and it's it's it was always a little shocking to me dealing with <laughs> BE guys because um, you know you deal with this guy, this veteran who's grew his business and he's now a fifty million dollar company, and he's backed by VC, and then they're they're a uh, you talk to some guy who looks like he hasn't started shaving yet, and he's the money money guy behind. <laughs> So the VC and P guys, they have no clue about about the industry. They're money people. And that, they're not going to bother with a $2 million company. 
Ladies and gentlemen, you heard it the first time on our channel, the expression. <laughs> no, it, was shocking. it was shocking. I'm telling you, when I, I look at these guys, I go, Wait, did, you, did you graduate college? You go, oh, yeah, four years ago from, you know, Harvard, of course. So it's just the, the money guys are a lot of times th those P guys, they have no knowledge of the industry, but they can tell you about your EBITDA, your, you know, just an EBITDA, you know the trends and all that. Yeah, it's called the, um, you know, they're learning from a book, basically, not from the industry. So, and, and, and it's, it's important. I mean, you need to know, you need that knowledge, but you also need to combine it with the knowledge of the industry, the uh, the expertise, the, uh, you know, what drives this industry. It's a bit of an anomaly in terms of an industry. And back to your question, you know, like your, your comment earlier regarding like the top echelon, I guess, as you called them, you know, our industry, um, and there are no, we're not the only one. There are several other industries that fits the same character, characteristics. You've got the 80-20 rule. I think you and I agree to that. You've got the 80% of the volume of our industry is handled uh, at the top 20 number of companies at the top. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got like the 20% of the volume is handled by the 80% of the companies at the bottom of the, the bottom of the list, I would call it. Yeah, so, that's right. Uh, there are other companies, industries like this, like the market research industry comes to mind, which is similar idea. You know, larger um, eighty twenty split again. You've got a lot of uh, a lot of that happening. So, yeah, in your opinion, Mike, uh, just going back to uh, the uh, you know, why would somebody or somebody who owns a company would you know sell generally? In your opinion, what what has the main driver or several main drivers that would drive somebody who owns a transition company? I know our industry is not lacking business. Everybody talk about how much business they can't handle. Why would somebody sell? I'm going to put that back on you, Mr. Ayub. You've been in the industry so long. You know how stressful it is? <laughs> After 30 years and you can you can retire, man, you, you grab for that one. No, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, it's, it's a stressful industry. And, and a lot of the, you know, these it's a lifestyle business for a lot of these owners. Yeah. And so I, I'd say the bulk of Kimon uh, Funtikidis Say you don't have a hard job. He, I said, why? He says, just go to LinkedIn, mm -hmm. go to uh, for CEOs of language companies, and just pick anyone with gray hair. <laughs> <laughs> so it's um, it's uh, when you're in the industry thirty years and you're ready to retire and you don't have kids going to take over. But what do you do? I mean, uh, so a lot of people think I'm just going to you know just hand it off to. But if, you know, you're smart and you start to plan, it, that's, so I think the bulk of these guys are, are doing it. Retiring exit? Yeah, they're not business people, as you, you and I know. There's not a lot of, like, sharp business people that are, come out of Wall Street. The guys who do do that, they buy companies. The guys out of Morningside, who I'm not crazy about, they bought, they bought the company, and then they just turned it around in a few years and they sold it. Yeah. yeah. There's not yeah. a lot of guys yeah. like that. No. And and you you agree with me probably like uh, when a um, those transactions happening on the small to mid size, uh, they're not following the PE cycle, right? So the PE cycle is like a five year cycle that everybody knows about. These guys are more long term. And the other thing I've noticed too, and I and I've talked to you about it before, is that um, most of the small to medium sized companies they enter into business, and as you know, most businesses will have an exit strategy. You know, what's my, you know, what am I going to do with this if it gets to a certain level or if I can't operate it myself? And generally in other business, you'd see like the family stepping in, like, you know, the kids, you know, graduated, they have good education. They want to take mom and dad's jobs so, or mom and dad's business. They take it over. 
That's another one too. Like I'm noticing like kids are the, the young generation is not interested in this business anymore. I mean, um, the to a large extent, I'm sure there's an exception out there, but um, yeah. what I'm noticing is based on what I'm hearing is, you know, these are translators or freelancers. They started a business. They have a small business, like a million or $2 million business revenue. And they, re- they reach an age where, sorry, I can't work anymore. I mean, everybody's entitled for retirement and say, okay, well, I accumulated this now. Now what do I do with it? Nobody wants to take it from my family. So I've got to find a way to, to, to sell it or do something with it. Yeah. Yeah. You nailed it. But you brought something else up, which is interesting, which is really true. And I, I experienced that is suppose you, you do start it and you get to 2 million, then you get to four to 5 million. And then you get to six million. You may not be the best person to run it, <clears throat> you know. And I, I, I did that with my last business it was uh, with Winter Wine, and I, we got up to five million. And I realized I'm not a, I'm not a tools person. I'm not a process person. I need someone to come in here and say, do this, this, and this. When you get to a certain level, so another reason to sell, or at least to find a CEO to step in, is that. That's right. That's right. And. And, you know, if you can't let go uh, as an individual and give that responsibility to somebody else who you can trust, uh, then it becomes a struggle. And then you probably have to you have to sell. Um, so how do like when like, let's say I'm a medium to uh, large size company and uh, I'm looking for something to buy. How do they identify who to buy? Like, how, how do they go about identifying the targets that they want to go after? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and- so mid to large size could cover a lot. Let's just say it's a $10 million company. Okay. Lots of, there's lots of reasons, Robin. For example, if you're an interpreting company and you're mostly on the East Coast, you, you may look to, to find something regional. So regional growth. So you might look for the Midwest, you know, a company that's strong in Illinois or a company that's strong on the West Coast. California always scares people interpreting because of all the W2, W9 uh, uh, issues around, um, I mean, 1099 issues around, but let's just say you want to grow in a vertical market. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you, you're strong in life science. You want to continue that growth, uh, you know, so uh, you're strong in the legal field and, and you want to get grow that vertical. So you do that. So there's vertical growth, there's regional growth, and then there's companies that just, you know, they have a tool. Um, you know, I think of uh, some large tool companies that, all they need is to take volume, throw it through their system, and they're, they're increasing their margin. So they're looking to grow, basically, just revenue growth. So I, always, I always, you know, I always had a question mark on that. Because if you buy a company just to add revenue, why don't you just add salespeople? Yeah. You know, it's funny. So here's another story. When I first, when I was… Uh, I know you're on the staffing side. You probably have… Asked, been asked to hire some people. Well, exactly. No, I was, uh, they bought this company, Thompson's bought us, we were PGA, and the guy from, he was a legend from Texas. He shows up, brings me into a room, he says, I want to make you the biggest language company in the world. But he, he, I said, he said, you know, I'm going to buy this. I said, I said, I said, Tom, just give me, give me a budget of 200000 I'll buy two salespeople. That's right. It's faster. Or, organic growth is slower. Oh, organic growth is slower. You're right. So time to time to revenue, I guess that's the that's the question there, right? I mean, yeah, you buy a company, all of a sudden you turbocharge your let's talk a little bit about post. Uh, now that you let's say, you know, I'm a company, I found somebody to buy, I bought it. 
you know, so what is the major challenging challenging issues that you would think about or you've probably seen already in terms of integrating tools, people? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's the things you would think about, and this is why and this is why it's important to do it beforehand. One of them is is culture. Yeah. You know, you have a totally different culture, you're a one million dollar company, you're bought by a ten million dollar company. So the cultures are totally different. How do you integrate that? You know, and, and a lot of smart buyers go, hey, I just came in. I love you guys. I'm going to give you all a 5% raise. And you just continue to do what you do. Then after a year, they come back and say, okay, we don't need this person. You know, that, that's the sophisticated way of doing it in some ways. Um, but the other problems are, you know, tools integration. You got to make sure that the tools that you use and, and they use may be different, then you have to transition that over. Um, I see personalities sometimes, a lot of times. Um, yeah, you know what? You, you hit a, a point, like, I, you know, uh, personally, I've been through uh, two of them, uh, um, uh, acquisitions. And and what was the most important piece that you already uh, mentioned, uh, Mike, is the um, cultural fit. Uh, it is very important because you know, our business is not widgets, right? I mean, we do translation for customers. So basically we're writers for on behalf of a customer as an industry. And so if there is not element of trust between the customer and the new organization, then that revenue that you bought, it's going to disappear. Um, so that culture of fit is essential to continue delivering to a customer, in my opinion. I don't know. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. So yeah. if you have the culture of fit, you can retain the revenue as a, you know, especially when you invested, you know, millions of dollars in some cases to buy a company. Right. It's in the best interest of the buyer to maintain that, to look a, a, to look for a cultural fit and B is to maintain it. Yeah. Um, you know, the slice and dice that everybody is well aware of mm -hmm. uh, there's a, you know, there's multiple risks associated with that. Unless you just want to buy somebody just to eliminate a competitor, which I have mm -hmm. not, thought of that to be honest with you in our industry i haven't seen it in our industry which we're lucky we're lucky this way so yeah yeah i mean there's there's a few people doing that right now but you know they go into you know a state and they have one or two and then they go get two or three more because then they they corner the market but not for the most part again this is not a, <clears throat> a lot of people going here to save the world we're not not a lot of cutthroat business people it's my experience have you seen in your in your past experience, based on what you've done so far, have you seen any customer says, you know, I don't like this, I'm leaving? Customer, you mean after an acquisition? Yeah, after an acquisition, yeah. It over it, it takes place over time, Mike. Right? It doesn't happen immediately. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, in one case, well, luckily it wasn't me, but I knew the buyer. <clears throat> He bought a company, and, and the, the company was, I believe, in Florida, and they had uh, uh, like 70% of their business was from one account. And you, as you know, there's no contracts. So they, they bought the company, they spent all this money, and then about three or four months into the acquisition, after they acquired him, the top account left. Not anything, you know, just because whatever, they got a better deal somewhere else, you know. So... The challenges of the service industry is nothing's locked in. Nothing is locked in. You're right. And, and you know, that, that takes me to the next one because, you know, part of the, uh, you know, buying a company is how much would you pay for a company? And, and that, the, the valuation discussion 
becomes very interesting, especially if you don't have any contracts in place locking anything, because those are the value, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, customer comes, customer goes, I guess, depends on, you know, their needs and does it fit or doesn't. Um, in your opinion, I'm sure you've helped a lot of companies, you know, go through the conversation of valuation of their companies. I'm sure uh, in your opinion, uh, I don't know, but what is your opinion on how that conversation goes sometimes? Because you've got the seller, he's got a, an opinion about one value and you've got reality on the other side. So how do you bring them together? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. And and you have to tiptoe a little bit because <laughs> I'm, I'm worth this, you know. <laughs> and I I um D who you know is gonna you're gonna meet in Canada recently said, you know, someone was in tears about something, you know, because of the valuation. It's like you you're um it's very personal mm-hmm. people. Uh but, but the reality is it is like the real estate market, you know, I, and I say to people, it's, look, I, I get this house means a lot to you. I know you gave birth to three kids in here and, and, you know, and your husband died here and whatever, but that doesn't do anything with the market. So the house next to you sold for this amount. This is what you get. So there's multiples that you work with. You know, yeah. if you're under two and a half million, it's three times your net profit or EBITDA number. Yeah. And six times. You may want to. But you can't. And if you insist on it, I can't work with you. You know, so I, I'm not I'm not out to, you know, screw anybody. I'm just letting them know realistically. Here's what the business runs, though. I mean, you're just stating the fact, really. Yeah, uh, some right. people, you know, if you're a seller and you want X number for your company, that's your prerogative. And you can that's your decision. You can do whatever you like and you can ask for as much money as you want. The question is, is it going to sell if you are serious about selling? That's another that's question. Right. That's and the other one, and I'm sure you've seen it before, where actually, you know, sellers are asking like for multiplication of revenue versus multiplication of EBITDA, for instance. Um, you know, you know, we're not a high tech company. We're not like, unless there is, I don't know. But right, no, that's yeah, you're you're right, Robin. And that and that's the so there's two things. There's a service company, but then there's the technology component and AI. You know, looked with ChatGPT, all these things going on. I don't know if you remember John Tinsley's company, Ionic Machines, or what? I yes, yes. I think he sold. It was like less than a million. He sold for twenty million. Okay, well, that, he's got a promising technology at the time. He's got a promising technology. RWS needed it. Yeah. Those, those. You know, I'm working with a company. Although they didn't get the most I wanted, they they did. Um, they do basically. Immediate translation without a person. So you have someone talking and it records it and then translates it. I mean, it's a technology that's now out there, but it's, you know. So if you have a technology that can le- you can leverage for the client, then it's, it's much higher multiple. Technology valuation is much different than service valuation, right? So right. Exactly. Uh, I mean, is, isn't RWS still listed on the stock exchange as a tech stock? Technology. Oh, interesting. I, didn't yeah, know. I, I, think, I think they're in, listed in the technology sector. Interesting. I think. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I haven't checked it lately, but uh, back in the days before the merger with RWS, uh, they were listed in the tech technology stock. So, yeah. and there's, you know, there's nothing, um, nothing uh, uh, wrong with that. I mean, if you can get more money for you, for what you've worked hard for, or for what you've developed, and if you've got like a, some essential technology that you can get more valuation for, fine. But in the case where you only have services, not you only, you have services, and you're trying to sell it based on multiplication of revenue because I've got a good customer. 
And this is another one extreme scenario where you've got a good customer, but you don't have a contract to lock them in. That customer could walk away. There's a lot of volatility. You know what I'm saying? That's right. That's right. So Yeah. So, the, I mean, a, a smart buyer, you say, well, I, I don't think they're worth this. I'd say they've had this customer for 15 years, mm. you know, and they've only done, you know, 20% of their budget. So, so as a buyer, you want to really invest in who are their accounts and can you grow them? And that's where the buyer goes, yeah, I'll pay, I'll pay four or five times a multiple, EBITDA multiple because, you know, because I can see we're going to grow these solid accounts because they, they've undersold them. That's right. That's right. So do you still see like um, a lot of, um, in, your, in, your, in your world, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they're involved everywhere, but do you still see like, do you deal with PE firms yourself, your company? Yeah, yeah, I, I do because if I look at now the buyers, I, I work with a lot of the larger buyers, you know, the, the, the big boys, and, and they have what's fun. It's a little bit like the ventriloquist and the dummy because the, the dummy is the CEO that's been in this industry. And they'll say one thing, and then they go to the VC and say, you know, um, what do you think we want to buy this company? And the VC says no. So they come back and say, no, we can't buy this company. It's like, well, you just said you wanted to buy them. Yeah. And the VC guys run the show. And uh, and uh, there are a lot, you know, a lot of these bigger companies are VC funded. They're VC backed or private equity. Um, and you still have someone who's knowledgeable in the driver's seat, but they're no longer calling the shots. It's kind of a, it's the guy who doesn't shave yet. <laughs> the hardware guy. <laughs> just graduated. Just graduated. Uh, just graduated. Uh, so, I mean, I don't know, but for me, uh, I feel uh, after I read the news every day, I feel like there's money coming to the industry from a variety of places. I always hear like, you know, companies investing from outside the industry, finance, uh, you know, investing, you know, in some cases, multi-million dollars, yeah. hundreds of millions of dollars in certain initiatives or certain companies, et cetera. Meanwhile, you know, I take a look at what's going on in our technology, and we were having a discussion on the podcast last week about Chat GPT with uh, Diego from um, uh, from Italy. Um, Sorry, yeah, Sorry, yeah. So I would, you know, you know, I would. I'm first. I'm surprised that you know there's a lot of financial interest. I I get it. Investors wants to park their money, and they would like to see where which industry gives them return on investment. That's fine. But also being from inside the industry. You know, I'm always puzzled by that. <laughs> I don't know. What do yeah, you think? Funny. You're, you're like you're like the Red Sox. They never believed they could win the pennant. How, how could you invest in the language industry? Um, but uh, yeah, it, it, you're right. And and industry, it's they're pouring money into this industry. You know, I, I think the there is a distinction. You know, they're pouring into these these technology companies, these AI. You know, there's mm. all these companies that do dubbing. You know, there's there's synthetic voice going in. I mean, there's uh, there's uh, you know so many AI components to to uh, you know that they so they're pouring money into these companies. They're getting money, but mm -hmm. the mom and pop shops <laughs> they're still just mom and pop shops, and that they're that's not being touched for them. But I okay. think there's a lot of money going into these uh, creative technology plays. That it's the biggest thing I think. You know, technology changes since the internet came. Yeah, like, I mean, I agree with you. Like, um, you know, I've, I've been uh, talking on the podcast here for several, uh, with several uh, uh, companies that they're, have great, you know, great ideas that they're bringing in. Um, you talked about uh, synthetic voice uh, 
um, dubbing. Uh, we talked to a company in um, in uh, Vienna, Vox Cube. I'm not sure if you know them. They have a yeah. They have a um, um, uh, uh, the CEO is Valentin Grishenko, and he's got a um, he's got a nice technology that enables um, you know you can take audio and you can put it in any in any language you want, basically a video, whatever. Uh, yeah. So it's pretty cool, like the innovation that's going on. And I know yeah. you probably heard the uh, uh, the, sta- the statement uh, that says the need is the mother of all inventions. So, um, you know, you've got this, uh, you've seen it on Slater, Mr. Beast uh, uh, from uh, YouTube decided to create his own company, you know, um, and that's, that brings us to another conversation altogether. You either, as an industry, we either play the protection of revenue or we get creative. If we don't get creative, somebody will get creative. And yeah. Most likely it's going to be from outside the industry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating to see. I think it's this generation, uh, you know, they grew up with internet. I mean, <laughs> I had to write an article for Multilingual. I co-wrote it about AI and globalization. And it's so funny because ever since they, we went from manual to electric typewriter, I, I backed out of the technology space completely. <laughs> <I don't, laughs> so, you still have a typewriter, Mike. <laughs> that's right. I do somewhere. So... <laughs> Um, so I'm not, but kids who grew up, you know, with phones and this is second nature to them. So there's a lot of young folks in this industry now mm-hmm. who see it differently than we do. And the idea that the, the world is smaller is really, it's true. I mean, but you, you're right. I mean, you bring up a very philosophical discussion about our industry. You've got two poles here. You've got one, the traditional uh, um, traditionalists, I guess, in our organi- in, in our industry where you have People have been doing this for many years. They've learned it in a certain way. And let's face it, those individuals are very resistant to change. So yeah. you throw new technology, you throw new methods at them. Not really. And yeah. you've got the new generation, which is part of the evolution process, in my opinion. you got a new generation coming in saying, hey, there's a better way of doing this. And yeah. have you considered this? And it's really taken off. Like, I, you know, we, we had a conversation last week and we're asking the question, do you think, you know, the new technologies that are coming out and there's every day there's a new technology coming out in our industry now? Do you think we'll be the end of our industry? And the answer, everybody seems to be telling me no, because there are a lot many, there's a lot more to do with those technology to harness the power of technology. Yeah. To yeah. create yeah. services around those technologies that's yeah. going to enable this industry to continue on for many years. I mean, since the Babylon day, right, 10,000 years ago, uh, we're still, we're still, we're still going, and this will continue going. Now, the good news about our industry is that, with the advancement of communication, internet, etc., people are talking more, creating more content, exchanging ideas more. Before, before all this, like I mean, not too long ago, before I mean, like in the, I mean, I'm gonna date myself here, but I mean, everybody knows what <laughs> it's not a secret. <laughs> you know, in the in the uh, in the early 2000, I mean, that's not that's not far ago. In the early in the early two thousand, there's like less communication that we have here by leaps and bounds. I mean, yeah. Yeah. now with you know, and, and what we've noticed, and the industry can attest to that, is we used to have like large documents to translate, large projects to translate. You know, you get like those mega projects where you can design solutions around. You can put them together in a more thoughtful way. Now you got is you know, 45, 50 words here, you know, 100 words there, and you got to do them quickly. So the needs has changed, evolved, based on the communication that we're using. Exactly, Ram. I mean, back in the day, I I remember when Microsoft came out with, uh, talk about dating myself, 3.1J, it was uh, Microsoft. 
Japanese translation. And they do it, and they did it every six months. It's a big localization effort. And Microsoft was the most sophisticated. And mm -hmm. that, you know, in the 19, you know, 98. <clears throat> then with Google, you get, you know, every week there's an update. Everything, you know, you have to localize. But now it's instantaneous. So what the needs are is that you can talk now, and this can be recorded and press a button, and, and it will be spoken in, in 100 different languages. Correct. We have now. Or you get a message, you know, it's a song you hear on YouTube. You can you can download it and then have it translated immediately. So it's instantaneous. Uh, yeah. So it's a different localization process altogether and different needs. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Um, and and you know, beside the fact that content is growing on a yearly basis, right? So um, and, and everywhere we go, every webinar we attend, every conference we go to, people saying that content is growing. I mean. Not you know the uh, number of words that we're generating as a humanity, as 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 people, is growing. You know, I mean, depends on the year, but during COVID, I've seen numbers like puts it in the 40 percent uh, growth. Um, wow. And so when you have so much content to grow, I mean, on a steady average, is about twenty percent per year. So, but if you are growing on a twenty percent per year, well, if technology is not helping us to do a better job in communicating in multilingual uh, environment. So what's the alternative, right? And we don't have enough people that speaks multiple languages or graduated from university from a linguistic degree to do this. It's, yeah. you, you gotta fill the gap with some sort of a technology solution to allow that to Interesting. happen. Interesting, yeah. Interesting. I gotta say there's a shortage of interpreters, there's a shortage of translators. So sure. I'm gonna go. Of course, even if you, if you need to translate the, all the content that we created using the traditional methods, you probably need the population of the globe to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. and that's where NMT is, 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 you know, stepping it up in a lot of it. I saw a quote from Kurt Vashi. I, I questioned it. He said, 99% of uh, translation is, is, uh, is there's a machine translation component. That's quite a number. So, so you know, there's a, some truth to that, and, but I don't know about the 99%, but there is some, yeah. some truth to that. And here's what I think. I think uh, MT is a component in the process. Right, for sure. It is not the entire process. Right. And for that matter, yes, I would have to agree that most companies uh, or most individuals in some cases, they are using uh, parts of MT to get the, you know, get going basically, or do the first draft, if you will, if you were in the writing environment. Yeah. And, you, you probably do it a little bit better by using uh, editing on top of that. So, right. Right. so because you because you have a dual role and you have dual companies, one that does staffing, one that does uh, acquisition and mergers and acquisition. Can we talk a little bit about how the job market impacted with all this mergers and acquisition? What have you seen uh, in the uh, localization world uh, resulted from M and A's uh, job growth, job reduction, creating new jobs? Mm. Interesting question. Um, I, I don't know what I'm what I'm seeing more in this the immediate is is the more need for financial guys, more need for these guys outside of the industry to go. Okay, um, you know, here's here what the here's what the numbers are. Here's how this work. Um, yeah, I, the other big piece that people talk about now, just to go back to what we we're just saying, is you acquire also to get resources because resources are finite. So if you're an interpreting company, I know ASL business, I do a lot of work with uh, uh, sign language companies and 
there's a shortage ever since COVID. There's a shortage of ASL folks worldwide. So you're an ASL owner and you, you, you have more work than you can handle, but you don't have the resources. So one thing companies are doing is buying a company to get the resources. So that's one thing. But there's also a need. There's more need for people outside the industry. Um, like I said, the guys who don't shave and come from Harvard, but also guys with financial degrees um, that have a tech, you know, they've done M&A, for example, and they go, oh, you can't, you can't, this is the cost of this acquisition. Don't do it that way. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. more uh, financial folks involved here than used to be because. Yeah. Yeah. Because you need all these experts now because the, you know, with money comes the strings, I guess. Right. So, when you've got money flowing into the industry, somebody needs to keep an, an eye on that investment. Obviously, those experts from outside the industry will become to play a role in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if, if you were, if you were a, uh, to give an advice, let's say, on for somebody who is uh, trying to sell their companies, what are some of the legal consideration they should do or any prep work that should probably consider before they walk into that journey of selling their organization or their company? Um, yeah. What are some of the things they should prepare for? Yeah. And again, I don't know why I like analogies in the house. Someone says, well, what should I do with my business? I say, well, if you're going to sell your house and you know you have a hole in the attic, fix, you know, fix that. No one else knows it, but you do. So in, in you have a, a translation business and, and you have either, you know, you have huge debt or you have, uh, you know, salespeople and, you know, you, you want to fix whatever your company is because mm. you want to buy a company wants to buy you on one level uh, because you you're running well. There's other companies that will buy you because you are a fixer upper. You know, you, you know, they have you have these you have yeah. been in the business 20 years, but you have 100 accounts that you haven't followed up with. Yeah, that's right. But a fixer upper is going to be less. You're going to make less money. So, but if I'm a if. I advise a, a seller is one is get your financials in order. Yeah. Down your debt. Get better margins because your 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 number your sales price is going to be based on your profit. Yeah. You, you need to clean that up a little bit. Um, yeah. That's, that's exactly what I was going to say. Is you got to define what you're selling. It has to be a clean transaction. So uh, in some comp- in some cases you you have let's say companies who's got like shareholders here and there um you've got like yeah. you know, on the legal side uh incorporated in two or three different countries that's right um yeah. you know you gotta you gotta f- figure out you know what are you selling and and, and as right. a business owner try to wrap your head first around what yeah. are you selling and how much you know what you know from a quantity perspective from a legal entity perspective and you're right i mean if and this process should start like not just six months before you start selling it. This, this process should start like three years before, four That's years. Right. Because yeah. those financial statements will eventually find you. Yeah. That's <laughs> right. Well, that's right. You, 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 I remember one of my early times selling the guy. It wasn't just him. He had like 15 different people owning parts of the business. I said, yeah. you've got to get agreement on 15 people selling your business price. No, I, I run this. It's my decision. Well, he didn't. You know, when they came up with the, the buy, I gave them a price and two guys who own like three or four percent of the business said, I don't want to do it. You oh know, so you, you get that kind of deal. But um, the other point you, you you bring up, Robin, is if you're you're in the U.S. and you want to buy a company, you know, in Mexico or you want to buy a company in Japan, 
there's legal stuff you have to understand. And, and that's, that's out of my uh, purview. That's, you know, you, you want to have legal people in those countries, you know, lawyers who do international law, because the, the purchasing is, is, is a lot more complexity to it. Correct. You know, we're both of us are in North America. We get, we're used to the uh, the legal system here or the uh, com- commerce system here in Canada and the U.S. Uh, but when you step you step outside of that, um, some of them are the same. Some of them are a bit more complex, and uh, some of them are really complex to get get things done. Yeah. And some of them are very bureaucratic systems too. So you gotta. You know, some of them are non-traditional, like, I said. <laughs> you know, sometimes you have to, you know, right. you know, do something outside of the ordinary to get things done sometimes. So, yeah. Yeah. And then the, the legal laws of fire, you buy a company in France, <laughs> you're stuck with those people for a while. And if you know anything about it, it becomes an issue. challenge. Right. Yeah. Right. So tell me, looking ahead, um, what do you expect in, in terms of the M&A activity in our industry and what the trends what do you think would be the drivers? Yeah, I mean, everyone's talking about, you know, the chat GBT that you had last week. That's word now. I mean, this thing is just talking about is it. like, the, oh, my God, it's the first time we hear something about technology. Uh, I, I read a good cartoon this morning in Zitz. The guy, the, the father who's like this dentist and the kid is this hip kid. And the father says, hey, I just used chat GBT to, um, to send this thank you letter to my uh, to my constituents and the, the next the next picture is the son going to his friend. He goes, AI is dead. He goes, what? No. He says, yeah, my parents are using it. You know, so <laughs> if you get to, if you get to the level where everyone is using, you know, AI, then it's it becomes ubiquitous. And, and we're not there yet. So the drivers right now are these you know, hot companies that are doing AI and, and have some kind of interface, whether it's we talked about dubbing or you know, marketing yep. and multi that's hot and that's where investment's going to go. Um, a lot of these mom and pop shops are still going to stay mom and pop shops and they're not going to take over, you know, Lionbridge, you know, uh, Accolade, RWS, they're going to use Lion. They'll use the technology because they have to, but the small guys aren't going to, and they'll still get bought up. So I think the money, the VC money or the PE, it's going to be invested in the kind of the technology, this sexy technology. Mm-hmm. But, and people, I mean, you brought up a very good point earlier. I think people is going to be key here because the lack of resources is seen everywhere. Yeah, 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 that's right. So keep doing what you're doing as a, as a seller and treat your people well because they're the value of your business. Correct, correct. Um, now, for, uh, for our audience, and uh, uh, what would you, uh, if somebody's listening to this and uh, they want to move to the next level, I guess, reach out to you? Is that... That's a nice plug, Ram. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, um, I, I sold my apartment once without a without a real estate broker, but I had to have a lawyer and accountant. You you want to make sure you have a legal uh, and financial. But yeah, I mean, the advantage of working with someone like me is that we've done this many times, so we can take the sting out of it. Yeah, I, I talk about you know you, you ever ride the New York subways, you get lost in a second. But if you live there, you just say, hey, get off the A and take the double D, whatever. It's not a big deal. So I do that for a living. So, yeah, if you're at that level and you say, boy, I'd, I'd like some help here, I'd be glad to. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And uh, Enzo Global is very easy uh, found. You can just Google Enzo Global and uh, Michael will be happy to assist uh, anybody who's got interest in 
having a discussion on uh, mergers and acquisition or just to have a breeze uh, chat with uh, Michael. He's a very approachable guy. I've known him for many years. Don't be shy. Um, uh, reach out to Michael and uh, uh, we're all in, in, in the industry trying to support one another. If we can solve a problem, if, my, if this podcast can solve a problem by introducing a a uh, good discussion around, you know, um, buying a business or selling a business. Uh, that's the objective for all of us in in, in this case. And yeah. um, any last uh, statement from your side, Mike? No, enjoy the spring. It's it's beautiful out there. Thank you. Thanks, Robin. I appreciate it. I want to thank you, Michael, for coming on uh, online with me uh, this uh, this morning. Uh, and I always enjoy our conversation. I hope I hope our audience finds it interesting. And I'm sure they will. Um, very uh, interesting to have a business conversation. Normally, we talk about the nuts and bolts of the uh, industry, but they, those business conversations are also interesting as well because you know uh, we're in it to provide a service, but we're a business at the end of the day. So, thanks again Thank for coming online with me. I really appreciate your time this morning. Sure, sure.